Okay, we recently completed a series going through the book of Genesis, and we're going to be taking a New Testament book next, but before we do that, we're, we just have a couple of topical lessons. We're going to hit some things. The lesson today is actually going to draw on a lot of what we've been studying over the last year. So the fact that we've covered these things, I think, will help to bring these points to bear a whole lot more. And uh, uh, I was studying, I I like, it it helps me in life to have people that I look up to who are my heroes. And um, the, the, uh, Sometimes these heroes have been dead for a long time, but they're still they're still uh, calling me higher. And this is a, a man who's only been he's been dead for less than a hundred years, so the body is is almost still warm. But he's uh, but he he's an encouragement to me. And the, I gave a lesson actually was inspired by uh, this brother. His name was James A. Harding, and uh, uh, he, he's an inspiration to me. And, and I, as I mentioned, it was the, the lesson on meditating on the Word of God daily. I think I mentioned in that lesson that Harding at his at his funeral in the eulogy that uh, one of his friends said that no man that he knew had inspired more people to study the Bible on their own than he did because one of the things he did he was a preacher uh, he preached all over and preached a lot but wherever he went he had he took little pledge cards with him he wasn't pledging for money they were pledging he's getting people to pledge that they'd read the Bible uh, on their own over the next year. So he, the way he did it, there are different ways you can do it, but he did it, he just said, we'll read three chapters of the Old Testament and the one of the New Testament every day. You know, we, we have a, a plan on our website for people who want to do that. There are lots of ones that are out there. But he, he, con- he convinced lots and lots of people to study the Bible every day, and it had a huge impact. And I thought, wow, I can't, probably, there's probably nothing I could do in my life that would have a bigger impact on a person's life than what he did. He obviously, he had his priorities straight, and he was and he left a great impact, which went on for generations afterwards in the churches of Christ. So uh, that was it. And, and, and the more I learned about Harding's life, he wasn't an intellectual, he wasn't a scholar, he knew the Bible really well, but he's a person who had great faith, and he clearly understood some foundational things in the Bible. So... I was, I was trying to learn more about him and his life and his ministry so that hopefully maybe I can get more of that spirit in my own life. And he, he's an upward call to me. So I learned a few things about him, just been studying about him. He was, he was the oldest of, of 14 children born to his father. He was born in, in Kentucky in the mid, uh, mid-1800s, lived 1848 to 1922. His father was a self-educated man. His father had started preaching when he was 15 years old. But he led a, a very heroic life to me. One of the things I appreciate about him is, is in his writing, he wrote more articles than he wrote books, but he had a very clear grasp of the kingdom of God, and that transformed all of, all of his teaching. That was, that was his framework. He, he grasped the importance of the kingdom of God, and out of that, he was able to teach some great lessons about things like, like non-resistance and peace, about unity versus sectarianism, helping the poor, materialism, the working of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, uh, understanding Satan's kingdom of darkness, 
and attitude towards the governments of the world, and even on baptism and rebaptism. So there are a lot of things that he really, as I'm reading it, and it's, it, it's, I'm impressed with the power and the clarity and accuracy of his teaching from the scriptures. And he had a great personal devotion to the Word of God that was infectious. He he inspired another generation of people to go out and preach and start schools because he had that kind of passion for the Word of God. So, uh, so he's he's an upward call to me. At the age of sixty six, okay, I turned sixty five this year, so I can benchmark myself against him. Uh, at the age of 66, he estimated he'd read through the entire Old Testament 60 times and the New Testament 130 times. So I would say I've got a lot of work in the next year and a half of my life <laughs> if I plan to uh, to, uh, to even... Uh, I'm just kidding. Obviously, he, he's, he's way ahead of me. But that tells you something about his perseverance over decades in preaching the Word of God. He was a big advocate of reading the entire Bible rather than just focusing on a few favorite passages and then pausing to prayerfully meditate on it and, as he said, delighting in what you have read. So he had a, he had a real love for the Word of God and it transformed his life and his understanding. But he was, he was a big advocate of reading through all of the Scriptures and doing it all the time so that you could understand the character of God and the sweep of how God has acted over history. And uh, he felt that was so important. The church really suffered in many, many ways for the lack of that. And he also he encouraged preachers to spend uh, four to six hours a day in studying the Word of God. And I don't know too many preachers who are that devoted. Obviously, he had to uh, uh, cast out a lot of less important things in life to be able to do that. And it said in one 17-year stretch of his life, he averaged preaching 10 sermons or lessons a week. So this, this was a hardcore preacher of the Word of God. So it's an upward call to me for sure. And one of the things, is, um, as I was looking at his life, this, this focus on reading the entire Bible and reading it regularly, being constantly immersed in all of the Word of God, uh, it, it impressed him with God's very active role in history and in the lives of, of the saints. And he believed that Satan had been very effective in his age in undermining belief in God's providence, meaning his, his active and loving involvement in the lives of people throughout history. Because he said relatively few people are in the habit of reading the Bible from first to last over and over again continuously. So he thought the reason that people doubted the goodness and the intervention and active involvement is because they, they weren't reading the whole Bible. If they saw that, they'd see it all over the place. they see that this is, this is completely in the character of God. So that's why, that's why it's so important uh, for us to do that. I think... Uh, you know, churches that have, have strayed away from that and have fallen into various uh, corruptions of the gospel, it's because the, the members of the church are not reading the whole Bible. So they're, they're, not, they're not immersed in that like he was. And so he's a big, huge advocate of that. So I want to I set that aside for a moment. And, and I'm gonna just, I'm gonna, we're going to go back to an insight that he had, which kind of floored me. It was, it was rather jarring to me 
But and I, I, I thought about it. I thought you know actually he's what he's saying is actually correct and, and fits with everything else I've been reading. Uh, one of the the things that's that's really a challenge for most people, whether they're believers or people who are having a hard time believing, is God is portrayed in the scriptures in the New Testament more than anything else as our Father. God is it says the cause about God is being light. God is being love. God is being many different things or being like this or like that. In the Sermon on the Mount, over a dozen times, Jesus refers to God as our Father or our Father in heaven. But that's the picture of God as a Father. And I find a lot of people, that's uh, they struggle with that because... So what, what do most people think about when they think about father? They think about their own father. Now, there, there may be people who are in the room or who are listening to this who are just kind of emotionally reeling at the thought of God as a father because they had very painful relationships with their father. Uh, you know, I, and I run into people, you know, some people, their father was just absent. He was, he was not there at all. Or he abandoned them. Or he was distant or aloof, like he really didn't care. Or he was too busy, he was unavailable, or he was abusive verbally, physically, emotionally, uh, or, or, or even in worse ways. Um, or, you know, I know people who've had fathers who were very unstable, they were emotionally unstable, they couldn't count on them, or they were unreliable. Or the, to the extreme of being harsh in punishment, Flying off the handle, being 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 tough in that way. On the other hand, other people had fathers who were enabling, and they just spoiled them, and there was no accountability for anything. Or other fathers who would play favorites with children. They have two, three, four, five children, whatever, ten children, and they have favorites. So they favor certain kids, and then they they don't favor other kids. So it's which is which is totally unfair. Or other people they will project. Okay. They think, well, what's the perfect father that I would like to have? And they invent God as the perfect father that they want to have. And a lot of times the perfect father they want to have is the father who gives them everything they want. Mm. So, so this, is, this is a challenge. And most of us will start off with God as our father, as the father we had or the father we wanted to have or something like that. And... And this is one of the reasons why it's so important to be reading all the scriptures so that we can bathe our minds and our perspective in the Word of God and we can see who God is and get a clearer and clearer picture of God that's not contaminated by the experiences that we've had. And a lot of those experiences have been bad, to tell you the truth. Anyway, this is, this is, this is a challenge. It's an emotional challenge that a lot of people struggle with, is seeing God and relating to God, connecting with God as, as a loving Father. But the character of God comes out a lot more to me, rather than saying God is fill-in-the-blank, God is perfectly loving, a lot of it comes <laughs> out more to me in the stories, where I can see over time how God interacts with people. And I can see the character of God displayed by what he did in different situations, which is why, to me, the Old Testament is so important, because it helps me to understand this is who God is, not who I want him to be, not just like my, the father I had, who wasn't a bad father. Uh, to, I didn't think he was, anyway. 
but uh, uh, but that's it. Now, so just just set that aside. My parents and my father and my mother both. My father died at an early age, age of forty nine. So um, you know, I didn't didn't have him for very long. But both of my parents, my father and my mother, they had four children. And they were really trying hard, although sometimes I would say they stumbled. They, they tried very hard to not show any favoritism. They had four children, and, which is tough because, you know, you've got one who's doing all the good things and one who's maybe not doing so many of the good things. Or you have one that's successful, one that's not so successful. They're, they're four, four children. They're all totally different from each other. But they were really trying hard to be fair-minded and even. You also you have four children, even financially. Some of them are doing really well. Some of them have challenges that they're facing. You know, uh, uh, someone that the spouse dies and they're facing facing a crisis. They're all different. They're four totally different situations. So, how do you treat? How do you show the same love without favoritism to four people or six or eight or two? who were in totally different situations. We had, we had this situation recently with my son and daughter where they have different paths in life and I'm trying to do something which is helpful to both of them, which is fair. And, and it was really, really tough to figure out what's the, what is a fair way to do this. And I had to talk to both of them to say, okay, you're in different situations. Here's what I'm planning to do. Does anyone think this is unfair, what I'm doing here? Because I'm trying to my best of my ability, to treat them fairly. Uh, well, let me ask you a question. It's, I, as a father, I'm really trying to be fair. Uh, let me ask you a question. God, our Heavenly Father, does God treat everybody the same? Or does He play favorites? What do you think? I don't think he plays favorites. I think he treats everybody the same. Okay. Okay, there is one opinion. He treats everybody the same. Now, that's the answer I want to believe. I want to believe that God treats everybody the same, which is why it was very disturbing when James Harding was asked the question, does God treat everybody the same or not? He wrote an article called Jehovah's Favorites, and you can guess what his conclusion was. He said, asked the question, he said, does Jehovah play favorites? Yes, he does. Wasn't Abraham a divine favorite or Joseph? Didn't God favor David over Goliath? And I started to think, that was not the answer I wanted to hear because I want to think of God as being impartial, and I want to be impartial as a father. But he's saying no. He's saying, he's just a guy who's been spending his whole life meditating on the Word of God. He says, absolutely not. God totally plays favorites. And I started to think about what we had been going through in Genesis. And let me just, let's just do a quick survey of things that we talked about and scriptures we've talked about over the last year. This is, this, I'm reading out of the New King James. I'm just going to give you a quick scan. This is from Genesis 4, verses 4 and 5. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. 
So he felt like, well, we're not being treated the same here. In the story of Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, says, So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry I have made them. But Noah found grace, and the word there means favor, in the eyes of the Lord. He was God's favorite. When God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country and your family and your father's house to a land I will show you, and I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Harding says Abraham was one of God's favorites. He didn't treat him like he treated other people. I can't disagree with him. In Genesis chapter 28, this is Jacob, and this is where the this is the story of the uh, the ladder, uh, you know, the ladder, the stay away from heaven. It says in Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 to 15, And behold, the Lord stood above it, meaning the ladder, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, the north and the south, and in you and your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until after I have done what I have spoken to you. He had a very special relationship with God. God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bring you back. And then there's the story of Joseph. When Joseph is cast into prison in Genesis chapter 29 verses 22 to 23 it says the Lord but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison and the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison whatever they did there it was his doing the keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. So Joseph, again, has a very special relationship. He's not treated like other people. In Moses, and in in Exodus chapter 19, when Moses is at Mount Sinai, there's a famous passage that Peter refers to where he's talking about the Jewish nation. In Genesis, uh, uh, it says, um, I'm sorry, in, in Exodus in Exodus chapter 19, it says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the children of Israel. So he's saying, I treated you special. I put, imagine an eagle. He said, I brought you on eagle's wings. I personally took care of you, and you're going to be my special people 
on all the earth. So it was the Jewish nation was favored by God. They were not treated like the other nations. And there's, of course, there's a condition here too. And then uh, I love this expression in, in Joshua chapter 1. God says to Joshua in verse 5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So Joshua had was, was God's favorite at that time. And uh, then the, the classic one is in the story of, of uh, Job, where Satan comes before God and is complaining about uh, Job. God says, if you consider my servant Job, there's nobody like him. In Job chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and all he has on every side? You bless the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. So God is saying, Job, there's my guy. This is, this is the apple of my eye. This is my man on the face of the earth. You may, you may have dominion everywhere else, but look at this guy. He's my man. And Satan, Satan complains. He says, of course he's your guy. You protected him. You put a hedge around him. I can't touch him. Of course he loves you. Of course he's your favorite. So Job enjoyed the blessings of that kind of relationship with God. He was a blameless and upright man. And uh, the story of David and Goliath, when David says, uh, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear will do the same with this uncircumcised Philistine. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he really believed God God delivered me from, from uh, the wild animals. He's going to take care of me this time too. David, and throughout the Psalms, David expresses that over and again that he felt that he had a, a favored relationship with God. And then there was Esther who prayed to God to stand up for her. Right? That's right. That's right. So, th- so the, throughout the scriptures, this is just, man, we could go on for hours, but, but you get the idea. And that's why Harding said, of course God has favorites. And of course he plays favorites. Now, the difference is, Harding saw clearly from the scriptures that while God always had favorites and took care of his favorites, the, 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 it was not based on an arbitrary thing. It wasn't just, he wasn't arbitrarily just choosing, well, I'm going to like this guy, I'm going I'm to... The favorites were based on the character, on the spiritual character of the people involved. And you can think about this in all these examples, that these are people who were... They were righteous. They were striving to lead blameless lives. I mean, Job is a classic example of all these examples. Noah, uh, Joseph, uh, uh, right, right down the line. The, the, the God's favorites were people who decided that they wanted to walk with him in righteousness and fear the Lord. And also that this favored position could be abandoned. The Jewish nation was in this favored position, but it was conditional. They, then they, they abandoned God and he abandoned them. They lost that, that favored position uh, if, if they're corrupted. So God has favorites. It's not based on arbitrary selections, based on their character, how they lived. And, and they're treated differently than the rest of the world. The good news is, 
the door is wide open for any of us who want to be favorites. There's no limit. He doesn't say, well, I only have 10 seats in the favorite position. He wants everybody in there. So you get to decide, do I want to be one of God's favorites? Because he absolutely plays favorites. Now, before you say, yes, of course I want to be one of God's favorites, there's another side of the story, which we may have, you may have alluded to as we're going through this. Jacob was a favorite of God, but he was put through 20 years of suffering under the abusive leadership of his uncle Laban, serving for 20 years and being cheated all the way along. Right from, his, right from his wedding night. Uh, Joseph, the favorite of God, Joseph was, was badly treated by his brothers. He was sold into slavery in Egypt, and then he did nothing wrong, but he spent two years in prison. Do you sense a pattern here? What happens to God's favorites? Job lost everything he had. He lost his children. He lost his possessions. He lost his health. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, there's a, there's a pretty strong pattern here, and you can, you, can, you can connect the dots for yourself. Those who want to be God's favorites, what do you have to look forward to? Let's look at the story of Moses. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to his greater reward. So, suffering, that's what you have to look forward to. Suffering in this life, but a greater reward beyond. And starting in uh, verse 35, in the, uh, what's in the paragraph break in most Bibles, second half, verse 35, it's talking about the heroes of faith, the favorites of God, how they were treated in the past. Listen to this. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So, what was life like for many of the favorites of God? Oh, in Pierce time we had people getting stoned for their beliefs. That's right. They were stoned, they were persecuted, they, were su- they suffered, they lost everything. Many of them. So being a favorite of being favored by God comes God protects you. He takes care of you, but 
But it could be a it's 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 likely to be a very difficult and challenging yes, ride. Like there was Stephen, he was a favorite of God, but he was stoned to death. That's right. Stephen's another great example. Uh, and then, of course, we look to the example of Jesus Himself, who was God's beloved Son, His only Son, who was the most favored one of God. Let's look at how He was treated, enjoying the favor of God. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let's run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So let's pause a moment there. So after looking at how the favorites of God in the Old Testament were treated, he looks to Jesus and how he was treated and the suffering that he went through. And then the Hebrews writer turns to us after that about what we should expect as God's favorites today. Verse 4. Have you not yet you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin, and you and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of our spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but for our profit that we may be partakers and hold his holiness. Now no chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. The pattern, this is why it's important for us to read all the scriptures, because we see the same story. We see it in the heroes of faith in the Old Testament who were God's favorites, what the suffering that they all had to go through. And we see it in the New Testament, and we see it exemplified especially in Jesus, who was the favorite of God, of, of how he was treated. So let me ask you once again, do you really want to be? The position, the door is wide open, the invitation is out there. Would you like to be one of God's favorites, his favored ones? Let me ask you another question. How do you think Satan feels about those who want to be God's favorites? He's jealous. Okay. How do you think Satan is going to treat those who are seeking to be God's favorites? What's that, Satan going to do to them? Not that great. He might destroy them. That's right. That's right. So you have God out. God is going to chasten you if you want to be his favorite son and daughter. And Satan is going to try to destroy you if you want to do that. Now, Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hands and we'll have a greater reward beyond. 
But it, as we survey the scriptures, it's very clear it's going to be it's going to be a tough, it's going to be a rough ride. That's what we should expect. Anyway, in Harding's own life, at the age of twenty-five, he'd been married for five years. He'd contracted malaria since he was married. He had three children born to him. Two of them died before the age of one. And then his beloved wife, Carrie, five years into their marriage, dies. But, but Harding had the attitude. His attitude was that God was a loving father who would only bring things into his life that were good for him. Even if he didn't understand it at the time, he really saw God that way. That, uh, and one of his friends said afterwards that uh, even as painful as the death of his wife Carrie was to him, that he really believed it was the best thing for Carrie and for him and for the kingdom of God, that it enabled him, his wife had been, had been sickly for a period of time, it enabled him to do the work that God had prepared for him. So he, he accepted that this was what God wanted for him in life. Um, he said, he said, God denies a Christian nothing but with a design to give him something better. He said, the very nature of love could not be otherwise. If God doesn't give you something in life that you want, it's because he has something that's better for you, as painful as it may be. He said, God intends the best for his children, so he'll give them what suits their needs best. We should pray that God give us whatever is best for us. Wealth or poverty, honor or humiliation, health or sickness, life or death. Being sure that whatever he gives to his dutiful child will be a blessing to fulfill his purpose, whether it's affluence or poverty, life or death. He said, God loves us and he allows no pain, no sorrow, no disappointment to come except for it be for our own good. Now, I know what he's saying is true. Intellectually, I know that this is true because it fits with everything in the scriptures. But this is a stretch for me personally to get to that point in life where I can say with my whole heart, God, whatever you need to put me through, I am confident that it's for my own good. Whatever I'm going through right, right now in life, uh, I may not see the, the, the purpose for it or, or, the, or, the, or the point of it, but I believe that you love me and you brought it into my life for a purpose that I don't understand out of love because you love me and you care for me and you know this is what I need to be going through right now. So I wanted to know, okay, how was he able to get there? And there were three passages of Scripture that he quoted frequently and relied on and obviously spent a great deal of time meditating on. Psalm 34, Psalm 37, and Romans 8.28. So with that in mind... I want to take a look at a few scriptures there and encourage you in your own spiritual lives to see God this way 
and to accept him as a loving father who's very involved in our lives and who brings things into our lives because he loves, he loves us and he knows it's going to produce the best in the end. Psalm 34. So I want to think about that. But this, this is a psalm that, that, that uh, he relied on and quoted extensively. I will bless, Psalm 34, verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He heard me. He delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. The poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want in those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may say good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and he saves such as have a contrite heart. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the souls of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Psalm 37, I'll just, it just it, our, our time is limited. I'm just going to read a, a couple of verses in there. Psalm 37, in the first uh, six verses, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. Should they so soon be cut down like grass, and wither as the green herb? Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the light as the noonday. Verse 23, starting in verse 23, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. He delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. 
And I'm going to close with Romans 8.28, which may have been the verse that Harding quoted most on this subject. Now think about the suffering that he faced in his own life and really embracing this and believing it and applying it. Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Guess just to, just to wrap things up here, um, does God play favorites? Of course He does. Do you want to be one of God's favorites? Well, if you have Satan trying to kill you and all that, probably not. The, the <laughs> Do you really want to be one of God's favorites? Because there's an opening there for you. If you want to take it, if you want to seize that and go through it. But it's going to involve chastening, <laughs> suffering, hardship. It's always been that way for those who are God's favorites. But God protects those favorites. It says that none of his bones will be broken. I think of Jesus on the cross. Okay, maybe his bones won't be broken, but his body was pierced, he was tortured, he had a crown of thorns, and he was crucified. But his bones weren't broken. So God will protect us, but we may be going through a lot of suffering on the way there. And I, I think the biggest takeaway for me from Harding is the way he saw Romans 8.28 is God is a loving Father, and if He brings suffering or hardship into our lives, He really does love us. He brings it to us for our own good as a father who chastens his son, and that He will work all things for the good of those who love Him. Amen.